Our reading this week comes from Romans chapter 10, and we continue on in what is essentially a sort of um, mini-series, as it were, within the broader uh, book of Romans. We have chapters 9, 10, and 11 gathered together, all addressing uh, this same theme from different different angles, different perspectives. And so, uh, we resume in Romans 10, reading from verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and pray to God for them, that's Israel, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. And a foolish nation, I will make you angry. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. This is the word of the Lord, and we give thanks to him for it this morning. Let's pray together as we come to God's Word. Lord God, we come before You. Lord, we are assured in Your Word in so many places that as we gather as Your people, 
We are not only united by Your Spirit, but we know Your very presence with us. Lord, as we come before Your Word, we do not simply read of interesting and informative things written down long ago. We read of who You are and who we are and how we are to be in light of Your great love shown towards us in the person of Your Son. And so, Lord God, we ask that in meeting You in Your Word this morning, You would indeed impress upon us Your love and Your desire for us to go and be Your people faithfully wherever we are this coming week. Lord God, we ask that You would bless Your Word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. We as a people, as a species, humans, are a people who are consumed with a need to change things for the better. It doesn't matter where we are or what circumstance of life uh, we find ourselves in, we always feel a need to do something about the world around us, to make it better, to improve it. And I find that fascinating. It doesn't matter where you are from. It doesn't matter if you're from uh, Livingston or you're from Kabul or Washington or uh, Moscow or wherever it might be, there is a sort of innate need to improve the world around you. And that might be something confined to your own life, your own circumstances. It may be that you view the whole world as a place for you to bring change and transformation. But we all seek to bring change wherever we go. And you can see that uh, played out in the news over the last uh, couple of weeks. Afghanistan, coronavirus, climate change, all of these things have bubbled up to the surface of uh, the news for various reasons. And in all of these areas, we feel a deep-seated need to do something to better the circumstances. Now, you might debate whether anything we've done in any of these areas has uh, bettered our circumstances. There is a great de- uh, deal of debate across the world about that. We evade, invade, or we evacuate. We sanitize, we wear masks, we vaccinate, we cut down on our emissions, we come up with alternate ways of fueling our world, our society. And we're convinced that these things that we are going to do today or tomorrow or whenever it might be, these things will bring true change. This will sort it out, whatever that happens to be. Now, we have no real idea whether it will or it won't. Often before, during, and sometimes after we've put these things uh, into place. But we feel the need to do something because it's the way we're built. The reason we feel this need is because we are made for something better than this. We were made for a world that existed in complete beauty, harmony, peace, tranquility, a place of true community, of of prosperity, where everything we turn our hands to results in great blessing. It's how God made us in the beginning, and regardless of who we are, whether you're a Christian or not, this is wired into you, because it's the way our first parents were made. As Christians, we feel a deep-seated need to change our world, don't we? In addition to all of those other things, we feel a desperate need to see our lives grow, 
our relationship with God deepen and flourish. We want to know Him more. We want to be more holy. We might not put it into those words. We might not even understand that's what we want. But, but everything we've done in our lives drives to that end, to improve, to grow, to deepen, to develop, whatever it may be. We want to see those around us, those that we love, those that are lost without God in this world come to know Him and be saved and for their lives to be transformed. In fact, we want them to do better than we're doing right now. We want to see our church built up and encouraged, our brothers and sisters around us blessed and, and their need met so that they might serve and we might serve and we might all go together in this world and in the worship that we have of God uh, each and every day. We want to see the community around us come under the influence of the kingdom of God. We want to see sinners saved and brought into fellowship with God at the very least, but we also want to see our whole community in some way brought in submission to Christ, because it is in living that way that we find our society flourishes the most. And we can see that in our society today as it moves away from that way of life, that Christian heritage and foundation that our society, that the Western world is built on. You can see society begin to disintegrate and crumble and come apart at the seams as we move away from that heritage. We want to move towards that and not away from it. And so there are many things that we will try and do to affect change in all of these areas of our lives, to try and see things get better, develop, and so on. And some of those things will work and some of them won't. And we sometimes have absolutely no idea whether they will or won't before, during, and sometimes after we have invested our time and energy and effort in them. And it can be very difficult for us as Christians to know on the basis of our past what we ought to do today and in the future. Should we go down this particular route? Should we engage in that course of action? Should I have that kind of conversation with someone because I've tried again and again and again and it doesn't ever seem to have done anything? We've shared the gospel. We've loved. We've cared for people. People have come in and they've stayed for a while and they've gone and no change ultimately seems to have come about. Or sometimes people seem to be gloriously transformed and then fall away later on and, and that can be so crushing for us, can't it? We can be so downcast and downhearted as we look at the world around us and we see things aren't going the way we would love them to, the way we feel they ought to, when a sovereign God who saves people is part of our lives. So what do we do? Whatever we do in this passage, we find Paul dealing with some of these issues and drawing out a number of things that whatever we do, wherever we go, whatever we say, these things ought to be our foundation. Because if they're not, we're not going to succeed. <laughs> the change that we bring won't be the kind that we want to see. But if we make these our foundation, we can be confident that change will come in the fullness of God's time, whether we see it in our lives, in our society, or not. Paul begins by recognizing that real transformation comes by God's grace. Now, we've drawn on some of these themes as we've worked over recent chapters uh, in the book of Romans, haven't we? In the first four verses, Paul doesn't repeat his opening in, in chapter 9, but he 
he says something similar, doesn't he? In the beginning of chapter 9, you remember that he says, I just so long for my people, my kinsmen, for uh, other Jewish men and women to be saved by Jesus. In fact, if I could accomplish this by having myself written out of God's kingdom so that they might be written in, I would do that. I would do anything for them to be saved. And here he begins to draw on that same sentiment. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, for his uh, kinsmen, according to the flesh, as he puts it in chapter 9, for the Jews, is that they would be saved. He longs for that. And he draws out in these opening four verses, in verses 1 to 4, why they haven't been saved the source of his frustration, of his agonizing for them. He says, I bear them witness. They have zeal for God. They're passionate for God. You you can't get away from that when you look at the lives of individual Jewish men and women, but, but the people as a whole, they are defined by their relationship with God. It's what the name Israel ultimately means it is a people who are constantly in relationship with God, and sometimes that relationship is one that goes well, and sometimes it's one that involves a lot of friction. They wrestle with God, but they are defined by God as a people. But Paul says their zeal for God isn't according to knowledge. This is the real heartbreak of the situation, isn't it? is that they are pursuing God in a misguided way, and because of the nature of that, they are never going to find Him. This is repeating what Jesus uh, has said in the Gospels, that as the people pursue God, what they need is Him, because He is the way to God, and He's the only way, and if they don't have Him, they're not going to have the relationship with God they seek. They must have Jesus. And Paul says they are ignorant of the righteousness of God seeking to establish their own. So they don't submit to God's righteousness. What Paul is saying here is that in the pursuit of what they feel is going to bring a right relationship with God, that is holiness. They've given themselves completely over to pursuing holiness through their own strength and haven't recognized that that's not possible that they need a holiness given to them from God, a righteousness from God that will cover their unrighteousness. And because their heads are down and they're beavering away at this one end of growing in righteousness, they can't see around them that righteousness has come, that it's provided for them in Jesus. And Paul says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, which is a kind of Strange way of putting it, isn't it? What he means by that is that Christ fulfills the law. He is righteous in his life for other people, for anyone who believes. So anyone who believes in Jesus will receive from him his perfect righteous life. So that as God looks upon those who believe, what he sees is the righteousness of Jesus, not the sort of of broken, corrupted, of half-righteousness that that we have managed to cobble together through sheer force of will. And Paul can't really help but communicate the tragedy of that in these words, in the words of chapter 9 and as he's going to go on into chapter 11. It's heartbreaking. 
because it's right there. They know everything they need to know. They've been presented with everything they need, and yet their heads down, the blinkers are on, and they're just battling ahead with their own righteousness in the hope that that will be sufficient. But real transformation will never come through our own effort in that way. It will come by the grace of God as He freely gives us the righteousness of Jesus as we put our faith in Him, as we believe in Him. If we make ourselves the standard for who is with God and who is not with God, we're not only misguiding ourselves, we're misguiding all around us. And again, this was Jesus' concern. In our prayer meetings on Wednesday night, we've been going through Matthew's gospel, and we're getting to that point of Matthew's gospel where Jesus has entered Jerusalem, and it should have been this great time of celebration and thanksgiving. The king has come to take his seat on the throne and and to rule over his people and to set them free and, and to do all of the things that God has said in the Old Testament. And when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, what he finds is not a people ready to receive him, not a kingdom just ready to go that as soon as he's there, we're off. He finds a corrupt and a broken and a damaged and a sinful people who reject the very one who's come to inaugurate this great and glorious kingdom. And this is exactly what is happening here. Jesus cries over Jerusalem, really to the authorities and the scribes and the teachers in Jerusalem, I would gather all of the children of Jerusalem to me, but you are stopping them from coming. You've put yourselves in the way. You've set up this insane standard of righteousness that nobody can achieve save one, that is Jesus, and you're making everybody live by it, and it can't be done. The issue is, as Paul identifies it, that the Jews are striving to live a good enough standard in the hope that that what they do will be sufficient. And this is something that we all do, isn't it? It's natural to want to do that. We want to fix things, always. We want to make things better. We look at our lives, and sometimes we feel a bit overwhelmed by what's going on, and we need other people to come and help us. But by and large, we want the problem fixed, however that might be done. And so we do our best in the hope that our best will be good enough. But we know, don't we, that our best is never really good enough. We have countless thousands of broken uh, um, promises that we've made to ourselves. We have New Year's resolutions that have gone by the wayside by January 2nd. We've got a whole catalog of, of things in our lives we can look back over and say, well, we tried for a while and for a season things worked, but then it all just came apart. Doing our best isn't going to cut it. It never does. We've just watched the Olympics, and if you've been watching the Paralympics on at the moment, it's astonishing to see what people are capable of achieving when they train hard and so on. But, but after the end of a race, when the 100 meters race is run, does anybody give any time to the, the man or the woman who came in fourth place if they bitterly complain and say, but I should get a medal, I did my best... I've never run faster than that in my life. I I, I got a personal best, so I should surely get the gold medal for that. Well, you ran 10 seconds slower than the fastest guy. 
You're not getting a medal for that. You weren't the best in the field. But I tried. Doesn't matter. And, and we know as I say that, that's silly, isn't it? It's a complete nonsense for anyone to claim that. But that's what we do, isn't it? All the time. I did my best. Surely that was good enough. But Paul's point is, it's never good enough. It needs to be perfection. The Olympian that comes in first gets the medal. The guy in fourth gets nothing. No matter how well he's done, no matter how hard he's tried. When we put our faith in Jesus, we receive his righteousness, which qualifies us for salvation because it is actually sufficient. And we're not simply content with our best, however good that might be, however much of the Bible we cram into our minds and memorize, however hard we try to live according to God's standards. Jesus is the only one who actually lived all this out perfectly. And when we believe in him, we receive his righteousness. And this will have a number of effects on us. It means that we're no longer focused on proving ourselves to God or to other people. We don't need to look like we're awesome Christians to the people sitting around us. Because actually that doesn't really matter. What matters is that we're pursuing Christ because of what he's done for us. You don't need to look amazing. What we actually need to be is people who are living in light of the righteousness that Jesus is giving us. Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel with which you've been called. That is what we're striving for. And if other people look in our lives and say, they're doing amazingly well, that's great. But it's not what we're putting all of our self-value and worth on. We don't need to pursue that. It means we no longer need to be proud of how well we've done. And I know it, it Sometimes we do really well in some situation and someone says, I can't believe how well you handled that or, or how you've managed to deal with that over all those years. And, and we feel good about that and that's fine. But we don't need to be proud of how well we've done. Our aim is to be proud of Jesus who has always done better and yet bothers himself with us to have us in his family. We sing that, don't we? It's Riches that we do not need, nor man's empty praise. But Christ ultimately is our inheritance, now and always. That's what we want more than anything else. And we're proud of Jesus because he, despite all of the people working against him, all of the struggles and the strains and the stresses, he did it when we couldn't. We're so proud of him, which has a knock-on effect in the way that we worship in the praise that we give him, but also in the way that we witness, doesn't it? Because we're just so proud of Jesus, of what he's done, of the sacrifice he made, of the lengths he went to. And when we speak to other people about him, that comes through. When we're ashamed of mentioning the name of Jesus, when we cringe inwardly at having to bring it up or, or talk about the gospel, that does communicate. Our desire is that we're, we're really proud that we're just bowled over by how great Jesus is and we just want other people to know. I've got this amazing Savior. That's why when you first became a Christian, potentially, um, when you first became a Christian, you tended to witness a bit more enthusiastically than you do over later years. And it's one of the reasons why when you are a younger Christian, you tend to see more people around you becoming Christians. Because you just can't believe the change in your life. 
This is why testimonies are given um, at baptisms and, and, and when people become Christians, we drag them up in front of the church and we want them to tell people why they became a Christian, why they were saved. And it just pours out of them. They're just astonished at the goodness and the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus. It's amazing. And when our righteousness isn't about me, it comes from Him. And we remember that. When we lift our eyes and take the blinkers off, that communicates. We'll no longer be overwhelmed by our lack of righteousness. If there was any other way in which you could have been saved... Save Jesus coming and dying on the cross, telling everyone very publicly that you were not able to do it yourself because that's how far he had to go in order to save you. If there were any other way, God would have done it. There was no other way. That was how it had to be done. Christ had to come and die before the foundation of the world. All of this was planned out. And that creates in us a sense of perspective, doesn't it? We are not able to do as well as we want to. So we don't need to be overwhelmed by our failures. We're going to fail. Who never fails is Jesus. So God will never kick us out of his family because Jesus' righteousness has been applied to our lives. We come under that umbrella, as it were, and so we are shielded from the wrath of God because it all falls on him and not on us. But we are able to then go on living our lives, knowing we're going to struggle, knowing we're going to fail, but that will not be the basis on which God keeps us in the family or kicks us out. We're able to come quickly to God and confess our sins. We're able to deal with these things with with one another because we know we all come together before Christ and we're going to fail, but what we want is to be reconciled. And God's work is always reconciling. We'll no longer need to judge other people for their lack of righteousness. And that's something that we struggle with, I suspect, as well. When we can overlook our own failures, when we can't deal with our own problems, our tendency is, I'll fix your problem. And so we judge other people for their lack of righteousness or our perceived uh, lack. But what we want is not to judge and condemn, but to point them to Jesus as their only hope, to Him as their sufficiency as their perfect righteousness, as the one who loves them regardless and has saved them. It brings a real change when we reckon on the transforming power of God's grace, of the righteousness that comes to us because of Him, because of Christ, and our faith in Him. And that's where Paul goes next. Real transformation comes by faith. Paul begins to just pour Old Testament into this passage. Now, that makes sense. He's dealing with Israel, and Israel knows the Old Testament. It's what they're all about. And so Paul begins to draw out from the Old Testament why they have no excuse. You may notice what he's doing here is in chapter 9, he has begun to draw out why Israel doesn't seem to be following Christ when they should do everything in their faith points to the Messiah coming, and yet they've rejected him. And in chapter 9, he's addressed why in God's sovereignty they have not followed. God is in sovereign control. Here he's dealing with Israel's responsibility and showing that chapters 9 and 10 actually fit one on top of the other. God's sovereignty and their responsibility both exist. They're both real. They both inform the situation, and you can't separate one out from the other. 
You can't say Israel is to blame because God just isn't in control of them and, and so they're just doing the best they can. But equally, you, you can't say that, that, that Israel is to blame because, well, God's made them this way and so they have no other alternative. We find that both fit together. They overlay one another. And so he quotes from Leviticus, he quotes from Deuteronomy, he quotes from the Psalms, or he references uh, some of the Psalms in 5 through to 13. And what we find him saying is that Moses testified to them about uh, righteousness when he gave them the law. He said, here is the standard, you must live by this standard. And that's true. And that's right. And so that's what Israel sought to do. But he goes on to say, Moses doesn't only tell them that they must strive to live by this standard, which is impossible for them to live by. Moses identifies they're not able to do this and require help. And that help comes by faith in God. And so what we find is in quoting from Leviticus and in quoting from Deuteronomy, he says, you must obey the law to be saved. You cannot obey the law to be saved. Therefore, you cast yourself upon God's mercy. And Israel know this. They confess this with every one of their feasts and celebrations, with the, days of, uh, the Day of Atonement uh, and so on. They, they confess this. They're not enough. They have to confess all of their sins onto this animal, and it gets slaughtered, or it bears their sins out into the wilderness, or whatever it might be. They know they can't do it. They're not enough. They need to place their faith that God will do what is necessary in them in order that they be saved. But they they sort of forget that. They overlook that, as we mentioned right at the very beginning of our service. This amazing truth of salvation, this great reality, just sort of fades away from them. And it becomes all about the ritual, all about the action, all about saying the right words and doing the right things, and their head goes down, the blinkers go on, and they just plow ahead with their own righteousness. And Paul says, that's not what the law says. You should know this. And he's going to go on and say they they do know this, but they're not listening. Righteousness based on the law is a matter of obedience, but righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend to the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. And what Paul is saying here is what Moses has said in Deuteronomy. That that we don't get into a relationship with God by going up to heaven, by somehow building our way up there, nor by, in Moses' words, crossing this vast sea. Paul changes the language a little bit. The word sea can be abyss here, and he has going down into the depths. The idea is the same, just going to this vast end where there is nothing but terror and death, and going to that place in the hope that you will will meet with God, that is to to, um, bring Christ up from the dead. It says the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. And Paul is drawing not just on what Moses says, but what the prophets do with this as Israel struggles and struggles and struggles and struggles and fails and fails and fails to be righteous. That is that God will draw their covenant to a conclusion. 
He will bring it to an end in such a way that He will write His law on their hearts. He will put it into them. Bake it into them so that they don't need to tell their neighbors what the law is. Everyone will know. Everyone will follow. Everyone will obey. Everyone will serve. Everyone will worship. The Word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul is overlaying Jesus onto the Old Testament and saying all of these sections that Moses wrote or the prophets wrote or the psalmist wrote, all of these things are looking forward to Jesus. They haven't said Jesus, but they've done everything but that. That's what you need. That's what they need. Because God's Word constantly points forward. It's something that Don Carson often says, that when you look at things like um, the the, the feasts and and the festivals and the sacrifices and, and all that constructs the religious life of Israel, there is always this question, where is this going? When will this ever end? Is it going to be like this forever? We have to just constantly make these sacrifices that never really do the job. And it's always looking forward to the day when a perfect sacrifice comes. And that is what Paul is pointing to. The covenant renewal that Moses talks about in Deuteronomy 30, where he says that the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, is realized in Jesus. He renews our hearts. He writes God's law on them. He sends us out to live new lives, not in light of our great ability to change things, but in the faith that God is able to change things, things as corrupt as we are. Things that if he can change this, me, then he can surely change anything else in the world. And again, recognizing that real transformation, whatever the activity, real transformation comes about by faith does is it changes the way we see what we do. As we confess who God is and call upon him for our salvation, as we place our faith in him, as we exercise the gift of faith that we're given, It helps us see ourselves differently. It helps us see our lives and the lives of people around us differently. We live and we work for him, but for our salvation we call upon his name. He is the God who saves. He will accomplish that end if we call upon him to do it. We therefore point ourselves and and others to our lack of ability and our need for help, and we point everyone to Christ and his perfect work of salvation. Now, that cuts against the grain of our culture and has done since about the 80s, where we've lived in a culture that says we should be the biggest and the best and the brightest thing in our lives. We should embody goodness and perfection, and we should always be striving to that end. You should never acknowledge that that you're failing and that you've failed umpteen times, and there doesn't seem to be any sign of any real change there. We deny that reality, and we live for hope. In fact, I saw an interview um, There was a TV show on last night, um, Parkinson, going back over 50 years of Michael Parkinson's interviews, and uh, Billy Connolly was a big feature of that. And in an interview uh, with Parkinson, Billy Connolly said, I'm an optimist. I'm always an optimist. I hate this idea that you tell kids that they should set their ambitions low and and not aspire to, to be great. He said, in America and Australia, they constantly fill their minds with, you're amazing, and, and you can achieve anything you want to achieve, and so on. And whilst we might say amen to that, to some level, it's not true, is it? <laughs> we can't do everything we set our minds to. And, and yes, we should have hope and expectation, and we should strive. 
But we have to do so within the right framework, within the bounds of our faith that says, in God, in Christ, all things are possible, but only in Him. I mean, we might invent a new phone and and make a hundred billion dollars and whatever else, but at the end of the day, when all things come to an end, when this whole created order comes to a conclusion, what will that have been worth? In the scope of eternity, what will that have achieved? What we want is to be in Christ, to be laboring for the God of eternity, because we will go on serving Him in eternity to come, when the phone has long since uh, gone and is no longer needed. We also don't need to make people better by drawing them into church. This is another struggle that we have. Just get people into church, get them involved, get them serving. There's everything fine with that. But that's not how we bring transformation to people. That's how we bring people in and involve them in a community they enjoy and they maybe stick around for, uh, for a long time perhaps, but at the end of the day, no real transformation has come to them. They've just got a new label and a new group of friends. What we want is not to make people better, but to have them encounter Christ who makes people righteous. Because regardless of whether they stick around here, or whether they're here for six months and and die in a car crash on the way home from a service, or, or whether they move away and serve in another church or whatever else, they will be forever changed and transformed by that. But if they just come and participate and then disappear off somewhere else in six months' time, no real change has taken place. We also don't need to stop sharing the gospel with people until it's done its work. And this can be the hardest thing when we've been sharing the gospel with people for years and we haven't seen any real transformation come. What we're doing when we're sharing the gospel, as long as we do so rightly, as Paul outlines in this passage, is we are bringing the gospel to bear on people's lives so they recognize they are not going to fix their own problems. They need Christ. And everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Because it doesn't matter where you're from, what your background is and what you do. Jesus is the same Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Real transformation comes by faith. That's what we're pointing people towards. That's what we are pointing ourselves towards. For all that it's good for us to labor hard to grow and develop. And lastly, real transformation comes by obedience in verses 14 through to 21. We so desperately want to see sinners saved. We want to see our world transformed. And as we go out with the gospel, we have the means by which it will be done. But we do have to go. We do have to labor. This was one of the great frustrations that God has with Israel, is that they were to be a light to the nations. And it's one of the reasons why we ought to be concerned with chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans. It's a challenge for us, isn't it? Because it's really about Israel. And Paul brings in the Gentiles, and he brings in the gospel, and so on, but it's mainly preoccupied with Israel. So, should we really care? Unless you're a Jew, then, then why, why bother with this? Well, here's why. Because what God does with Israel all the way through the Old Testament, he is doing with us. Everything that he has done with them, he has led them, and we thought, over the last couple of weeks about promises and covenants and giving them his word and leading them and being a savior to them and doing all of these things, all of these great things that Israel has had, 
God gives to the Gentiles. And the hope is that Israel will still benefit from this as they turn to Christ, the one in whom all of those things are bound up in. But until they do, they won't receive the benefit of it. But God has gone to the Gentiles and has done so in part for their blessing and in part to help Israel see and understand this is what you ought to have. You should be living like this. And you're not because you've rejected Jesus. But you've got everything you need. And he says that in this passage, which I have never really read, perhaps, in the right way. Because so often we we separate 14 to 17 out and we say this is the great justification for preaching. How will people be saved unless they hear the gospel and unless people go and preach the gospel to them and unless they then respond to the gospel? So we've got to go and preach the gospel. And that's totally right and that's good. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. That's the, the, the preacher's text more than any other passage almost anywhere else. But Paul says they haven't obeyed the gospel, but they have heard it. And I'm not really sure that I'd read the end of this chapter as clearly as I ought, because I tend to just focus on 14 to 17 and think, yep, that's great. How will they know? But Paul says, well, they ought to know, because they did hear. Because we've gone to the ends of the world, we preach the gospel everywhere. And what he means by that is not they went to South America on the Monday and then flew to China on uh, the Thursday. And you know, he's not saying we preach the gospel in every place all over the world or even to every human being in the world. What he means is wherever there are Jews in the world, we have gone and spread the gospel. Everywhere they are, they are without excuse, which is a huge challenge both to them and to, to Paul and the rest of the early evangelists. But they've heard They've been challenged by this. They know that they still haven't responded. Their voice has gone to the the, the ends of the world. And so God says, I'll make you jealous of those who are not a nation. That's the Gentiles, the peoples. Foolish nation. I'm going to make you so frustrated because of what they've got that when you see them, you'll understand what you could have. I've been found by those who didn't seek me. I've shown myself to those who didn't ask for me, the Gentiles. And all day long, I've held my hands out to a disobedient and contrary people, Israel. Paul is saying here, ultimately, that Israel's lack of obedience to what they have read and what they've heard is the problem. They haven't obeyed by casting themselves upon Jesus. And so they're in this terrible quandary. They've received so much, but benefit so little. And they will go on benefiting so little until they receive the bounty of Christ's righteousness. And he's going to go on in verse 11 to say where we go from there. But ultimately, real transformation comes by obedience. Obedience in the first point to our, for ourselves, that we pursue Christ. That we, that we go in the way that he has set our feet upon, that we don't get the beginnings of it and then think, that's fine, that's enough, I know what I'm about, and now I'm going to go and transform the world by telling everyone to love each other. They're not going to love each other, and you can't make people love each other. We've seen this in Afghanistan. You can't march into a country, tell them, you, you, and you have to go and live like this because this is the best. Okay, are we fine? Right, we're going back home, and just expect it to work. It doesn't work. Instead, 
what we are called to do is we are called to live out these lives of obedience as we are transformed by Christ, as we walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, as we live out our faith with fear and trembling. We pursue Christ, having been changed by him, and call others to be changed and then pursue him also. So we are obedient for ourselves, for our own relationship with Jesus. But we're also obedient for the world. Israel were sent to be a light to the nations and didn't do it. So Jesus came and became Israel, became the light to the nations in order that men and women might be saved and drawn into relationship with God. Real transformation comes by obedience. And the problem is, (laughs) obedience is really hard. (laughs) It's not any harder than faith. But but we have this idea that faith is a non-physical thing, and so it's easy, and obedience is a physical thing, and so it's hard. It's not any harder. It's not any different at all. It's just living in light of the faith that we have. But we must be obedient, because to do so is to miss out on all of the things that God has promised us in Jesus. And so grace is followed by faith. And faith is followed by obedience. And whatever else we do in the various ministries and the life of this church, if we pursue grace and faith and obedience, transformation will come to us as a people, to our families and to our friends and to the world around us as Christ is brought to bear upon a sinful people. Let's pray together that we would busy ourselves with grace and with faith and with obedience. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you send us out into the world to be your people, your church, this light to the nation, and we thank you that it is all under Christ. And Lord God, as we begin to open back up and as we think about the various ministries of our church resuming again, Lord, we do so with a great sense of anticipation, expectation, hopefulness. Lord, we long to see sinners saved. We want to develop relationships. We want to see uh, people cared for and blessed and nurtured. We want all of that. That's why we're doing all of these things. And yet, Lord, real transformation isn't going to come to any of these people, to our lives, if we don't start with grace and with faith and with obedience. And so, Lord, whatever we do, However we act, whatever we say, we ask that these three things would fill our lives, that we would pursue them doggedly, that we wouldn't see the pursuit of these things as a waste of our time when we should be busy doing other things. Because without them, we're tinkering around the edges. We're changing things for a time, but not for eternity. And Lord, with these things, with Christ at the very center of it all, people, nations, The world will be changed, not just for a few weeks or months or years, or even for a generation, but forever for your glory. So, Lord God, we ask that you would bless us with confidence, with courage, with joy, with enthusiasm, but with a knowledge of what true transformation requires, your grace, the faith that you give us, and the obedience that we are called to walk in every single day. And, Lord, we ask it all. In Jesus' perfect name. Amen.